Hi, and welcome to Storytelling Animals, a green new podcast where I talk to writers about climate ecology and animal justice. Um, I'm your host, Dayton Martindale, and today my guest is David M. Peña Guzman. He's the author of When Animals Dream, The Hidden World of Animal Consciousness. He is also a professor at San Francisco State University and the co-host of the Overthink podcast, which is a philosophy podcast you can check out as well. So yeah, our conversation covers both the sort of scientific evidence for animal dreaming, um, as well as sort of the philosophical import of that. What does that mean about their consciousness, their capacity for imagination, and of course their moral standing and our ethical responsibilities toward them? Um, so it's a fun and fascinating conversation, um, occasionally with you know, somewhat difficult discussions of uh, laboratory experiments that are both educational as to what animals are like, but also I think um, definitely David and I both consider to be cruel. Um, if you enjoy this episode, please um, consider signing up for my free weekly newsletter. Uh, you will get every new episode in your inbox along with um, other updates related to the podcast and the book club that I host, um, as well as the, the link to the best article I read each week. So you can sign up. Uh, there's a link in the episode description for that free newsletter. Um, it also gives you a free trial uh, attendance in a book club meeting. Our next two are um, June 28th to discuss Entangled Life, How Fungi Make Our Worlds, Change Our Minds, and Shape Our Futures by Merlin Sheldrick. And then uh, July 26th, we'll be discussing the novel The Ministry for the Future by a previous podcast guest, Kim Stanley Robinson. So if you want to attend one of those, um, sign up for that newsletter. If you want to attend both, uh, you can support this podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash storytellingpod. That's patreon.com slash storytellingpod. Um, and depending on what level of monthly support you offer to this podcast, there are different perks. You know, some levels of book club membership, um, everyone gets early access to episodes. You can ask me questions and stuff like that. Okay, without further ado, uh, here's the interview. so much for coming on the show. I appreciate the invitation to be here. Um, yeah, so I thought we could just start with how you became interested in this topic. So why did you, how did you end up writing a book about when animals dream? Well, I think it was a combination of luck and eventually necessity. I I'm somebody who specializes in animal behavior, in animal consciousness, in animal cognition, and in the course of doing research unconnected to the subject of animal dreaming, I ran into a couple of references here and there that started raising a few questions for me about what happens when animals go to sleep. Uh, it's not something that I had ever thought about before or that I thought merited a systematic, um, systematic academic treatment, let alone in the form of a whole book. And as I started digging into some of the research that is out there about animal sleep, about animal minds, about animal consciousness, and putting them all together, 
I came to the realization that there was something that was missing in the existing literature on animal science, and that was that systematic, um, detailed account of whether animal stream and what the implications of that might be when it comes to our understanding of the inner lives of animals. So initially, it was by chance that I began thinking about this. And then when I realized that there was not a lot out there on the subject, I decided to to put my pedal to the metal and and uh, write a book about it, uh, which is now When Animals Dream, which comes out in, in June. Um, great. So, yeah, I think this question of whether Animals Dream is interesting because I imagine some subset of listeners are thinking maybe, obviously, yeah, you know, you've seen your dog kick while asleep or, you know, move the dog's legs like they're running while they're sleeping. And of course they're dreaming. What else could it be? Um, mm -hmm. But others, uh, and this is a, has been a popular view in the sciences, you say in the book, uh, have looked at dreaming as something that's either purely human or maybe just impossible to prove in, in other animals. Um, but at least in the story you tell, it wasn't necessarily controversial, you know, maybe 150 years ago, and it became more controversial over time. So how did animal dreams become disputed? Yeah, so I do begin the book by talking about this tension that exists between the intuitions of lay people uh, who look at the animals that they share their life with and say, of course, they're dreaming. What else could it be? As you say, uh, they see their their dogs kicking or barking or making weird vocalizations at night. And the conclusion seems to be pretty obvious that there is a kind of subjective dream world that is unfolding in the in the minds of these animals. But as, as I point out in the book, there is this tension between the intuition of the layperson and what scientists are willing to accept as scientifically valid claims about animal experience. And one way to think about this book is to think about it as a scientific and philosophical defense of the position of the layperson as opposed to the position of what I take to be the majority of scientists today who, as you note, either don't believe that animals dream because they think only humans have the mental wherewithal um, to have these nightly recreations of, of reality, or take an agnostic position where they say, you know, it's really difficult for us to know either way because we cannot step into the shoes of other species, so we can't say anything positive or concrete about that. Uh, so, so the book definitely sides with the layperson, but I make the argument that, in fact, if we take the scientific evidence that's already out there very seriously, it, it actually shows that scientists have been maybe unnecessarily conservative in their in their assessment of of the animal mind. So it's a scientific defense of the position of the non-scientist. That's one way to think about it. Mm -hmm. And you go through a lot of the scientific evidence in the book. Um, I'm wondering if you want to just walk us through, uh, I, I think you called dreams the uh, recreation of the their reality or something like that in your answer just now. Mm -hmm. um, if you, there's a suggestive experiment in, in rats and one in zebra finches that you talk about toward the beginning. Do you want to pick one of those or both and, and just sort of walk us through some of that evidence for animal dreams? 
Yeah, let me begin here by saying that one of the things that really surprised me uh, as I was conducting the research for this book is just how much evidence actually is out there to support the claim that other species have these reality recreations uh, during sleep. And I try to cover most of that evidence, um, which includes, as you point out, not only mammals like rats, I talk about dogs, I talk about cats, I talk about elephants, but I also talk about other animals that are perhaps a little bit more surprising um, because we typically tend to associate um, or, or rather we try, we, we often tend to assume that only animals that are closer to us evolutionarily share mental capacities with us. But, but as I point out in the book, we really have to extend the net of dreaming beyond just mammals. Um, I talk about birds. I, uh, talk also about fish and even about cephalopods, um, like, uh, octopuses. And so it's a really wide span of of animals that are implicated in this book. And that leads us to really reconsider how we think about the distribution of mind in the natural world. But to choose just one example, let's pick the zebra finches. Um, finches, of course, are birds. And I look at research in the book, especially in chapter one, although I return to it in other chapters, showing that when they go to sleep, zebra finches perform these uh, mental replays, acts of mental replay. That's the term that scientists use to talk about this, where they replay the song that they're learning while they're awake. Uh, they typically learn their song uh, horizontally, meaning from uh, their parents. Uh, it's not from their parents and from other members of the community. It's not something that is innate. And so they're, they have this task of learning their song that they use for communication and courtship. And when they go to sleep, one of the things that scientists have discovered, which I find fascinating, is that you see the exact brain pattern taking place while they're asleep as when they are singing their song when they are awake. So there is a clear parallelism that cuts across the waking and the sleeping state. And I suggest that this is one piece of that larger puzzle, which is the evidence for the dreams of non-human creatures. And what's even uh, more interesting from my perspective is that it's not just that the animals are mentally replaying it in the form of displaying a specific brain pattern, uh, a neural signature, but that even their very bodies are going through all the steps while they're asleep that they would have to go through in the waking state in order to dream. So their throats perform the exact movements needed to create the sound even though, of course, they're not actually producing any sound. So they're just mimicking their parroting, if we want to use uh, here a bird pun, uh, uh-huh. I suppose. Um, they, they are rehearsing their own song in their, in their sleep. And I think this, this constitutes a form of dreaming. So I, I look at the evidence and I interpret what I think it means. Um, one additional little piece of, of, um, Another little detail that I would add here is that when this is happening and you see these patterns of neural replay and you see these throat movements, 
you also notice that the birds, um, the auditory centers in the bird brain are also lighting up, which means that in their sleep, they're experiencing a sound, even though they're not actually producing any sound waves. And so they're hearing something, they're feeling something, and I think that is one way of defining dreaming in the simplest sense, mm -hmm. right? It's when you feel and think and experience something in the context of sleep. So is that, um, is that similar to what happens in human brains when we are dreaming? That's correct. Uh, when you and I go to sleep and then we transition from deep sleep to what is known as REM sleep, that phase of the sleep cycle that is typically defined by the present by the occurrence of rapid eye movements REM um what happens is that not only do we see certain bodily movements that are indicative of dreaming like the movement of the eyes which is taken to be the correlate in the real world for the kind of visual scanning that we are doing in our dreams but you also notice certain key um areas of the brain lighting up. For example, our dreams tend to be highly visual uh, in, in the case of most humans. And so the visual cortex just starts getting activated left and right, indicating a visual experience. Now, one difference here, of course, is that vision might be extremely important for the majority of humans, but maybe sound is more important in the life of the average zebra finch uh, because of the role that their song has okay. in, in their social lives and in their evolutionary history. So it's not surprising that in their case, it's the auditory rather than the visual centers that get activated. And one of the philosophical, now here switching gears from empirical science to a more philosophical point, one of the philosophical points that I make is that when we think about the dreams of other species, we have to be really open-minded about what those dreams can look like and what they can be, because there's no reason to expect that other species will dream just like we dream, right? A zebra finch will have a zebra finch dream, and maybe that dream is purely auditory without a visual component, for which maybe there is no analog in human experience, or at least in the experience of the average human. Um, and, and so we have to be really attentive to differences um, that are due to species uh, membership. Right. I mean, dreams are already so weird. Yes. From our human standpoints or, you know, with between humans that it, it'd be surprising if they were, you know, more understandable or easily accessible in the mind of a, a bird as well. Yeah, and I think that's something that really draws me to this subject matter. It's just the bizarreness of it all. Mm -hmm. You know, when you think about the science of human dreaming or the philosophy of human dreaming, the question of the bizarreness of dreams is front and center. That's the first thing anybody who has thought rigorously about dreams will, will note. You know, we're entering a hinterland that we don't really understand it's somewhat otherworldly. It's somewhat enchanting. It's somewhat phantasmagoric. And if on top of that, you add other animals, the dreams of other animals, it's almost as if you get bizarreness squared. Um, and so you have to move through this really difficult terrain that limits you in many ways. And I talk about 
some of those limits in the book because I, I do recognize them. But it also enriches your view of of the animal world in ways that I didn't anticipate until I put in the time of working through this book and uh, publishing it. Yeah, and I think it's important to that you, that point you made that we get. Um, we have this. We have sort of two levels of evidence, um, at least for animal dreams. One of which is kind of looking at the sleep cycles and the what neurons are firing and the brain patterns, um, and another is just kind of looking at the animal behavior, whether that's the you know vocalization patterns in the throat of the finch, um, and kind of one of the most uh, striking examples to me um, in the book of of kind of this more behavioral evidence of dreams where. Basically, animals' behavior doesn't make sense, or it's hard to figure out why they'd be behaving a certain way unless dreams were involved, is the evidence you have of animal nightmares. Mm -hmm. um, and I was wondering if, if you could talk about the experiment on, on rats in particular, but just generally why you decided to include nightmares in your book. Yeah, so nightmares, of course, are a form of dream, uh, but they typically get differentiated from bad dreams. So there are dream, there are bad dreams, and then there are nightmares. And the difference in the scholarship is that typically nightmares will draw you out of your sleep. You will wake up mm -hmm. in a panic when you're having a nightmare, whether um, uh, whether you're at the beginning of it, in the middle, or at the end. Whereas with just an unpleasant dream, you can follow it through and then you will remember, mm, that was not the best dream. Um, but you don't have that subjective reaction where your body kind of rejects the scene that it's presented with. And, you know, you wake up in the middle of the night and you're sweating, your heart is racing, your palms um, are, are also sweaty. And so that's the, the important difference between um, bad dreams and nightmares. And Again, as I started doing research on the philosophy of dreaming and the research on animal sleep, I came to the realization that there is also a connection there insofar as animals also wake up in a panic. Uh, they experience night terrors. And to be honest, this was a, a heartbreaking part um, to write because it it really brings to the fore animal suffering, psychological suffering, and the extent to which animals can be haunted by their own past, especially when that, uh, especially when that past includes in it traumatizing experiences. Right. And I, I talk about various animals that we know now experience nightmares. I talk about elephants that when they experience a deeply traumatic event, especially at a young age, uh, when they're young calf, uh, calves, they are subjected to nightmares for, for years after that traumatizing experience. Their sleep patterns are dysregulated. Um, their emotional profiles are also uh, disrupted. And they can get a good night's sleep. Uh, these animals then develop what we now know to be the elephant version of PTSD. Uh, you, you mentioned rats and uh, unfortunately we know 
the most about rats only because they are the animal that we tend to study the most in in laboratory settings. Um, rats, uh, mice, uh, other rodents. Um, but I think the same applies to a lot of other species. And in the book, I talk about a specific experiment that was conducted in China about rat memory and its connection to sleep. And the researchers found that if you traumatize rats uh, physically or psychologically, you can induce nightmares. And those nightmares continue for days and weeks after the traumatizing event. Um, unfortunately, as I point out in the book, research like this really puts us in a in an ethical catch-22 situation. Because on the one hand, they teach us something that does enrich and deepen and render more complex our, our views of the minds of animals. But at the same time, the research itself raises a lot of ethical questions. Um, because, for example, in order to perform this study, the researchers had to actually traumatize the rats and actually induce nightmares. So it is a form of scientifically sanctioned physical and psychological torture. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I have some qualms about interacting with some of this research um, because I, I do want to point out that it, it raises ethical questions. Now, this particular research um, found, and this is something that I talk at length in the book, that you can traumatize a rat, for example, physically by delivering shocks, electrical shocks to the feet. And if you expose them to that stimulus for a long enough period of time, they start waking up in the middle of their sleep cycle, panicking. And they show all the physiological indices uh, or indicators of of a night terror. Uh, they uh, their their heart rate is sped up, uh, their respiration rate is sped up, and they have difficulty falling back asleep. But it's not just physical trauma that produces this reaction, which in the scientific literature is called startled awakening. It's also psychological trauma that can do this, so purely mental stress. And the way in which the researchers did this, and I think this also brings um, brings into the discussion the social lives of many of these animals. What they did in order to produce psychological trauma in the in 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 a group of rats is they had a group of rats simply watch through a transparent barrier the physical torture of another group of rats. Uh, so the group that was being given the the physical the 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 electrical shock to the feet they experienced nightmare nightmares. But fascinatingly, so did the group that was just watching. And so in, in the book, I ask the question of what do we learn from this about, for example, the extent to which rats empathize with one another, such that watching other rats suffer is such an acute uh, source of stress for them that it can bring them to have nightmares. Um, and so as, as um, I point out in the book, the nightmares of animals in particular are a really good, although heart-wrenching, window onto the emotional lives of, of other animals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm 
I'm glad you brought up those ethical questions because, yeah, if you hadn't addressed it then, that was something I was going to ask about too, is just sort of this this tension between that we do learn something about these other animals in these studies, but it what we learn is almost that we shouldn't have done these studies or, you know, the more we learn about them, the more horrific the fact that we carried out the study seems. No, I think that's right. And this is something that I have explored elsewhere. Uh, this dilemma that hovers over scientific research on animal behavior and animal cognition, which is that the more that research is successful, the more it undermines ethically its own justification. It takes out its own foundation um, to the point that you draw the conclusion that that research should not have existed because that research is correct. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I think this is something that we are becoming increasingly attentive to, which is the fact that the results that we get in places like scientific laboratories ultimately have repercussions, ethical ones and moral ones, for what we are entitled to do to other animals. And I myself, I'm an, I'm an animal ethicist. Uh, that's part of my training. And I do believe that, that a very large portion of the research that we conduct in scientific laboratories does not meet ethical standards. Um, and yet I find myself in a position of having to rely on uh, some of the data produced in these ethically fraught spaces in order to make certain claims that I need to make about animals, their way of thinking, their way of seeing the world, and ultimately, as I do at the end of my book, their moral and ethical status and the moral protections that they should receive. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think two things that stand out about that to me, the first is that um, we got similar evidence in elephants in a situation that was not a controlled laboratory experiment. Um, and, and that the, you, you say in the book that sort of the elephant sleep cycle doesn't, uh, doesn't closely parallel human sleep cycles. And so there were people who thought that they probably couldn't dream. Um, but when you, when you look at the behavior in response to trauma, it, it does suggest waking up from a nightmare. Um, and so again, maybe we, should be slower to declare what another animal can or can't do. Um, and then the other thing that that really stands out to me is what we're learning about these rats is one, that they are, um, you know, empathetic, they care about each other, they respond to seeing harm in others, and two, that they don't just live in the moment, that they are, you know, what happens to them on one day has repercussions well into the future, And I think that, you know, that's something that I hear a lot from um, either ethicists or or scientists who are sort of trying to explain why animals maybe don't have as much moral standing. And it's it's that they don't that they live in the moment. People say that they don't, you know, they don't have the same close relationships. They don't have, you know, goals in the future. And it just doesn't necessarily uh, seem true. And one of the ways in which they don't live in the moment is the way in which their past affects them uh, and can cause trauma. But another important way that's related to dreams is that, you know, we use dreams in English to dream as both, you know, the, what happens when we're asleep, but also 
as a synonym for our hopes for the future. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes. And there's evidence of dreams in that sense uh, in animals as well, including uh, from rats who want to explore another part of a maze to, to, you know, chimpanzees who are able to use their imagination and play. Um, So do you want to talk about sort of that aspect of, of dreams, kind of the looking into the future and not just recapitulating what happened during the day? Yeah, thanks for that question, because I think it's a very important one. You are right that a lot of people take for granted the notion that what differentiates humans from other critters is that we experience time as time, meaning that we experience the here and now in relation to what came before and to what we expect will come in the future. So for us, time is a framework that includes three temporalities sort of constantly blending into one another and flowing out of one another, past, present, and future. And the idea is that by contrast, animals don't have that structure. Uh, Animals just experience time. If we want to use a geometric metaphor here, is that they experience time as a point. The here and now is the totality of their experience at each and every moment. So they go from here to here to here without um, thinking about the way in which that here and now might be contextualized, again, in that larger temporal structure that is the flow of temporality. And I think this perspective has been defended by a lot of scientists, but also a lot of philosophers in the history of of the Western canon and the history of Western philosophy have have been responsible for perpetuating this notion. Um, And and, uh, you you see a number of philosophers from antiquity all the way to the 19th and even the 20th century um, arguing that animals effectively are atemporal creatures. Now, there are many ways to try to work against this scientific and philosophical loose consensus. You know, there are people who disagree with that, so I don't want to make it – I don't want to over oversell mm-hmm. the argument because there are people who have argued against that view uh, quite convincingly. But there are multiple ways of, of going to battle against it. Uh, one can look at behaviors that clearly indicate some kind of temporal understanding, uh, behaviors that require some kind of planning. Uh, so, for example, if you see um, a non-human primate picking up a very heavy stone, walking with that stone for a couple of miles until they get to a clearing where there is a kind of nut that they want to crack open that wasn't in their first location, and then they take the big stone and crack it open and eat the contents, you can somewhat conclusively say, I think, that that animal knew that there would be nuts in the future and that they needed to bring something from the past in order to achieve their goals. So uh, that kind of planning unifies past and future through the present. Um, I think that because of the dual meaning of dreaming that you just alluded to, where dreaming means both to have these thoughts and experiences and sensations in the middle of the sleep cycle, but also to think about the future, like I dream of a, of a better tomorrow, dreams are also an indicator 
that animals are temporal subjects. Um, I mean, for starters, let's just be very clear that most dreams are reenactments based made on the basis of past experience, right? We dream of things we've experienced in the past, people we've seen, people we've met, places we've visited. Our dreams reference the past at the level of content. And the same is true for the dreams of other animals. Animals dream of the things that they've experienced, which means that they carry the past with them and in them. And so already that challenges that notion of the atemporal non-human creature. But as I talk about in the book, there have been some really clever scientific experiments that bring into the mix the question of desire and projection, where you think about something that you want to achieve in the future, that suggests that animals don't just dream of the past, they also dream of things that they envision, things that they desire, things that they fancy, things that they imagine, um, that they conceive. And that also then brings the future into the equation. Um, and so I do think that we need to revisit our, our philosophies of time to, to recognize that we're not the only creatures on this planet that have complex temporal existences. I want to I want to move into um another argument you make in the book which is basically that um you can't dream without being conscious and you know if you are a creature who is capable of dreaming you're a creature who is conscious. Um there is a I think you mentioned the book too a lot of people use the word consciousness to mean different things. Um, I think probably the the two most common, which it would be maybe just as any form of basic subjective awareness, um, is counts as consciousness, and then another in which maybe only um, you know more complicated, you know, being able to have thoughts about our thoughts and mm-hmm. use complex human language counts as consciousness. Um, and like a, a level of self-awareness, I guess. Um, so you, for the purposes of your book, um, you put forward kind of a, a three-part model of consciousness, the SAM or SAM model, um, where you sort of break, obviously all the, all the parts are related, but you break what we mean by consciousness into um, three different things, the subjective, the affective, and the metacognitive. Um, I was wondering if just kind of, we don't need to, you know, go all the way into the complicated philosophy and science of consciousness. Um, but maybe we could just kind of briefly break down what we mean by those three different parts of consciousness, um, starting with subjective. Uh, yeah, great. So let me say just as a way of positioning myself in this larger field where you're right, uh, everybody and their grandmother has their own definition of consciousness. And I honestly don't remember reading an article on the philosophy of consciousness that doesn't point that out. It just has become a, a rite of passage that you have to acknowledge that uh, <laughs> if you want to enter into the field. And a lot of people do think of consciousness, I would say, on a vertical model where you have to climb certain levels 
and only if you cross a certain threshold, then you are conscious. If you uh, cross some kind of door that gives you access to the top. Um, for some people, that might be language. For some people, that might be reason. So for some people, that might be metacognition. My model is much more horizontal. And we can think about it almost like a sports arena that has three different entrances on three different sides. And there is no one right or wrong way to enter a circular arena. There are just different entrances, and they lead to the same common ground at the center. And so if we think about that, my view is that consciousness is this internal part of the arena, and you can enter it by either having subjective awareness, by either uh, by either having subjective awareness or affective awareness or metacognitive awareness. And of course, that's a hyper-simplified uh, presentation of those three categories because as you note, I also recognize that they're connected in very complicated ways. So it's not as if I believe that they're separate things altogether, but I do think we can differentiate them for the sake of explanation. And so the the bottom line of this more horizontal SAM model is that we don't have to wait for an animal to meet whatever really high bar we put on the eighth floor of our conceptual building to say that that animal has consciousness. Um, if that animal just has that thing that you called subjective awareness, which is a term that I also use in the book, I believe that suffices to make the argument that that creature is conscious because subjective awareness, just the fact of having a phenomenal field in front of you of which you are the subjective center, that's something that inanimate objects don't have. We can call it sentience. We can call it feeling. We can call it subjectivity. Whatever term we use, it just hinges on the recognition that having a point of view on the world suffices for consciousness. Equally, having emotions and a- and affects and feelings suffices for consciousness. That's also something that inanimate objects like planets and molecules and rocks don't have. And of course, even the things that we find on those higher levels that other people really valorize, like metacognition and language, those also give you consciousness. But I, I argue that they're not the only ones. And the reason that I make the argument that to dream automatically is to be conscious is because I think that a creature that is not endowed with consciousness couldn't possibly dream. That's a logical contradiction insofar as the very concept of dreaming presupposes having a subjective perspective on the world and having a certain feeling in that world. Um, so I think it's it's a logical point, and I, I want to emphasize that because I think it's inconceivable to have a dream that doesn't have a subjective perspective or a subjective scaffolding. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, th- I just think that there is a, a foundational link between dreaming and consciousness in a way that hasn't quite been recognized um, in connection to animals. Mm-hmm. It's like if you're having a dream, what that means is that like there's something 
you are seeing or hearing or thinking or feeling while you're asleep. And it, yeah, it'd be impossible to have that without being able to see or hear or think or feel. Um, yeah, correct. You know, what would what would a dream without any feelings or sensations or thoughts be? Uh, even if we try to imagine the simplest dream, right? Like maybe I just imagine a completely white field, the way in which movies typically uh, represent heaven or the afterlife. That's already uh, a physical stimulation. That's already color. Um, that's already uh, phenomenal and therefore subjective. Um, and so it, it just, it, I, I really cannot think, I cannot imagine an asubjective dream. And I think that's quite telling. And when you say phenomenal, um, can you just unpack what exactly that means? Oh, yes. So the term phenomenal uh, has a, a double meaning. Um, I, I think there's a lot of terms in the book that have at least two meanings, if not more. Um, of course, in everyday speech, we use phenomenal as a superlative uh, to mean things that are amazing. Um, that snack was phenomenal. That wine was phenomenal. <laughs> but in the philosophy of consciousness, phenomenal refers to a type of experience that we have as conscious beings that hinges on, um, on feelings and sensations. Uh, even in the absence of cognition. So for example, one um, one example of this is if I just see the, the color red, that's a phenomenal experience because cer a certain phenomenon is being presented to me. If I hear a melody, that is a phenomenal experience. If I sense something by touch, that's a phenomenal experience. If I'm walking and I trip, and I break my nose on the pavement, that's a very intense, phenomenal experience. Um, and so phenomenal here means having to do with phenomenality, which can be translated simply as having phenomena manifest to a subject. So thank you for asking for that clarification, because I sometimes use the term phenomenal <laughs> in everyday conversation, even uh -huh. outside of academic context, and it creates a lot of confusion. <laughs> Well, I'm glad that was a really helpful um, unpacking of the term because um, it's helpful to ask my next question, which is, let's say, you know, people might concede, okay, animals do have, you know, a bird or a fish or whatever has has that phenomenal consciousness, right? Um, mm -hmm. They experience phenomena. Um, maybe they can see white or they can feel a broken nose or uh, but some people might still say, yeah, but morally, really what matters is that metacognitive, which is basically being able to be self-aware about one's own thoughts and, and be able to represent them abstractly through language and stuff like that. So what what would you say to people who say, and I, you know, I'm inclined to agree with you that just the, the basic phenomenal consciousness that's, you know, that's enough that once you have that, once you have awareness and feeling like, I think you morally matter. Um, mm -hmm. But what would you say to those who say, actually, you need kind of higher level, quote unquote, thoughts um, before I start caring ethically about what happens to you? Yeah, well, I, I would say they're wrong <laughs> uh, to begin with. But of course, that that's not sufficient. Uh, you have to give some explanation as to why that is. And in this case, I would say 
not only are they wrong, at least according to my view of the relationship between mind and ethics, but they're also defending a position that is quite dangerous. And so maybe I would begin by pointing to some of the moral dangers of holding that view that our moral status is somehow contingent upon the possession of high-order cognitive capacities. And I talk about this in the last chapter of the book where I tackle the question of ethics. And I say, look, if you really put the bar that high, and if you really want to believe that only creatures who meet the bar, let's say of metacognition, since that's um, uh, the the usual suspect here, if you really want to make that move, then you need to be able to explain a few things. Number one, you need to explain to me why I should care about children. Uh, children don't have metacognition. If you're uh, an infant or a toddler or even a five, six-year-old, we know that children don't don't have metacognitive capacities, certainly not of the kind that people who make this argument usually require. And if you make moral status depend on that, then you have a really difficult job to do, which is to explain to me why we shouldn't go around treating children as as objects without any repercussions. And I think the average person would say that that's obviously not the way to go. Um, and, you know, uh, children feel pain and pleasure. They have moral status. They form meaningful relations with others. They enter into dynamics of trust and care and dependency and vulnerability with other sentient beings. That's what really matters. That's why we care about children. And if that's the case, then we we have to revisit the argument a little bit and move away from higher order cognition. And it's not just children that that raise a question here. Of course, uh, animals also raise an, another question. So if you agree that let's just choose an animal uh, such as, well, I was going to go with insects, but just to avoid complications, let's go with um, mice. Let's say that somebody tells me, David, I believe that mice are phenomenally conscious. They experience things, they feel things, they, um, they have sentiments, they experience pain and pleasure, but I don't think they are metacognitive agents. Therefore, I exclude them from my theory of moral status. Again, the, the consequence of that position is that we can instrumentalize mice in the same way we instrumentalize physical objects without sentience without having to give it a second thought. Um, and I, I find that quite uh, troublesome because moral status is a very foundational concept in moral theory. We're not here talking about them having very advanced um moral rights that are very difficult to satisfy. We're talking about the most basic ethical protections. Moral status is about whether you can be killed with impunity. It's about whether you can be tortured without consequence. And so denying moral status to a sentient creature is a very, very big deal. And the stakes are so high that I think even if we didn't have reasons to believe that other animals have... um let me rephrase that. I believe that the stakes are so high that we should err on the side of caution. Hmm. Uh, and uh, 
it's better to have some false positives where you end up protecting some creatures that maybe don't need protection rather than to not protect creatures from basic and fundamental violations to their dignity that do need that protection. Either way, I do believe that we have reasons to believe that they are phenomenally conscious and that phenomenal consciousness is the foundation of of moral status. That's the argument that I make at the end of the book, that that's how we should think about ethics. Mm -hmm. And I think, yeah, I I think there's something powerful to using dreams as a way to get there. Um, You know, I I think in the popular imagination, I, I think dreams carry a certain moral valence, uh, and, you know, from I have a dream to the idea of, of dreamers as, you know, as immigrants. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I'm not necessarily saying that animal dreams are the exact same thing, but just this idea that, you know, other animals are capable of imagining the world as different than it is, um, is, is basically part of what it means to have a dream is to have have some experience or vision that's different from what is actually happening in the world. Um, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Um, no, I, I think that's that's correct. And I would add um, a correction as well. Okay. So I think you're right. And in the, in the book, I talk about dreams as escapes from reality uh, that show that animals can experience another world than the one that nature gives them. Um, and that's why there is a difference between the waking world and the dream world, even if the dream world is typically composed out of elements of of the waking world. Uh, we take bits and pieces and then we form something new in a dream. And so it does speak to that second meaning of dream, um, of dream as aspiration, of dream as imagination, of being a dreamer as somebody who who longs and yearns for a better life. And the correction here would be that I would take it even further and say that even if there are dreams that don't have that futuristic element, even if we just stick to the more literal sense of dreaming as recreations from the past, even if they even if they make no reference to the future, that already has a moral valence because what matters for me is not what animals dream about. I, I mean, obviously I care about that because I find it fascinating, but I don't care about that when it comes to the ethical dimension of this debate. For me, what matters ethically and morally about dreams is just the fact of dreaming itself, the fact of generating from within yourself this reality simulation, this analog to the real world. And the reason that that matters morally is because that's a phenomenal experience, again, in that technical sense of the term. And if I believe, as I do, that phenomenality is the key to moral status, then even the most uninteresting, boring dream that an animal might have is already enough for me to grant that animal moral status. Um, and so, yes, it, it has to do with aspirations, but it doesn't need to require that. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you made that clarification because I think, yeah, I, I think I agree. And, you know, you were saying that what having moral standing means 
is, uh, you know, not being able to be killed with impunity or, or tortured without consequences. And that is precisely the situation for uh, not only many of those animals in labs, but many of the animals in in farms or in the wild or in lots of other places. Um, and so just establishing that bedrock of if this is a creature who has that subjective awareness, has those feelings and emotions and thoughts or, or whatever that is is proven by their ability to dream um, and however, you know, simple seeming the dream, uh, then, then it undermines the, the actual reality of, of how animals are considered and treated. Yeah. And I, you know, by now I've done a couple of interviews about this book and it's it's been very interesting to me that the majority of questions that I've gotten in in a couple of cases exclusively um, are about the science portion mm. of the book. Um, and maybe that's because I open with the science. But for me, the most important part of the book is the moral theory, at least in terms of my motivation for writing this book. The reason that I wrote this book is because I came to the realization that through dreams, we could revisit some of our most fundamental assumptions about animals, including assumptions that then have this ricochet effect on moral theory. Uh, so even though only the, the last chapter deals with, with ethics and morality explicitly, this is really the, the engine. This is what moved me to write the book, and that's what moves the book forward um, and, and so I, I feel it's important to note that, um, even though I, I of course can get sometimes lost myself in, in the science because I find it fascinating. Um, and I also can get lost in the somewhat abstract discussions and debates about the nature of consciousness and cognition and metacognition. I always have to remind myself that the reason any of this matters is because I ultimately want to improve the lot of other sentient beings in our world. Um, and, and so there should always be a, an ethical and a political dimension to to my work. And in this case, it's through this connection between dreaming and moral status. Well, I think that's a, a, a great and important note to end on. And is there anything else uh, you would like to add? No, thank you. I uh, thank you for the invitation, and it's been a pleasure to chat with you. Yeah, thank you so much for joining me. That was uh, David M. Peña Guzman, and the book is When Animals Dream, The Hidden World of Animal Consciousness. Thanks for listening. Um, there's a lot more where that came from in the book itself, which comes out uh, later this month in June. If you enjoyed this episode, uh, please give this podcast a follow a rating, um, share it with a friend, post it on social media, um, any, you know, any way you can help get the word out, I'd be greatly, uh, appreciated. Um, if you're interested in other discussions of animal ethics, you can go to some of my past episodes and interview with the philosopher Jeff Sebo or the food activist, uh, Lauren Ornelas, um, or a couple others. And yeah, thanks so much for listening and have a great day.